A former classmate of mine told me, oh, they have a job at Caltech for someone with double E background and some patent experience. They had someone ironically named Fred who worked at JPL and had a master's from Caltech. We just turned it down. So why don't you come and talk to them? And I'm like, what is that transfer? Never heard of it. And I came and I talked to them and Larry Gilbert, our founding father, I would say, whose DNA is in the back there. <laughs> Talked to me for an hour about tech transfer. Didn't ask any questions. Fred Farina is the Chief Innovation and Corporate Partnerships Officer at California Institute of Technology, or Caltech, where his duties also include overseeing the technology transfer out of NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory. He tells us what it was like to start his career in tech transfer by being hired by Autumn founder Larry Gilbert and what has kept him around Caltech for more than two decades. Caltech came to technology transfer much later than its peers in 1995, and Fred tells us why that is and how it has caught up to its peers, and how his office is treading carefully to provide additive services without shifting the culture away from foundational research. He also tells us how Amazon Web Services came to be the first corporate to build its own building on campus. Fred, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Happy to be here. It is a great pleasure to have you. To start with, can you give me an overview of commercialization at Caltech? So Caltech is a science and engineering focused university on the west coast of the United States. We also manage the Jet Proportion Laboratory for NASA. We control IP that is generated at Caltech, of course, on the campus, but also at the Judge Proportion Laboratory. And so my office is in charge of commercializing intellectual property at a Caltech and JPL. And first of all, we joined this field very late compared to other universities. 1995 is when Caltech started doing this. They established an office. To give you a reference, Stanford started in 1970, MIT in the 1940s, I think Wisconsin in the 20s or something. They were the first ones to do this. So came late. I'm not going to talk about the Bayh-Dole Act that, you know, in 1980, that generated the whole field, basically. And Caltech started in 1995 with a interesting model that was somewhat traditional, but focused on startups, but aggressive patenting and friendly licensing was the idea to get technologies out. We deal with very early stage technologies. So at the early stage, you really never know which one may have a place in the market or be successful. And so get them out, patent as much as possible, get them out and see what happens. You know, somewhat similar to others, uh, MIT and Stanford, in that sense, a little bit more passive, I would say, because, I mean, that was the field, right? When it's established, universities can patent and own their inventions and their license, and we wait for companies to come. We never did marketing, but others do marketing. We don't think that works really well for early stage technologies. But over the years, we've really evolved into, I would say, from a patent licensing model to a business creation model. And that is happening in the last 10 years where we have now programs, early stage funding in the lab for potentially commercially viable projects or uh, technologies, de-risking in the lab. Then we have entrepreneur residence program. It brings former entrepreneurs or in between people in between startups to the campus for a couple of years to help faculty to complement the expertise in the office of tech transfer from an operational standpoint in the startup. 
fundraising, pitching to investors, et cetera. Then we have, as of a year and a half ago, we created a seed fund to invest in startups. And then we just opened up an incubator now and looking at the life science building in the near future. So really an evolution from a little bit more passive, still startup focused, but you know, driven by faculty and now much more supportive with other programs, whether money or expertise in starting companies or facilities. You've managed to touch on quite a few things that I wanted to talk about there. So we'll get back to those at some point. How would you define Caltech compared to other institutes of technology? How do you compare to, say, MIT? We're a lot smaller, about one-fourth the size of MIT. We don't have a business school, we don't have a med school, we don't have a law school. MIT does have a business school. And I think because of that, we have one contiguous campus. You can walk across 10 minutes each way in the rectangle or square. And it's really sort of a big family. Everybody knows each other. You bump into people on the campus all the time at the faculty club, a different, and so you get to know people personally, I would say. So that distinguishes Caltech a little bit from a lot of other institutions. It's also very flat in terms of management. You know, the provost is my boss and the president have access easily if I want to. I know if I were at one of the big universities, it would take six to nine months to get a meeting with the president or the chancellor or whoever. So things can move much more quickly. We're private, so we get a little bit freer of state regulations or requirements. And when we decide to do something, we can move really quickly, put things together. And so that's one of the differences, some of the differences at the university level. If you look at the tech transfer, we had to become a lot more proactive in the commercialization efforts in the sense we're not situated in an ecosystem where it's full of VCs, full of entrepreneurs, full of companies, tech companies, biotech companies, like around Kendall Square and Silicon Valley around Stanford. And so we had to become much more proactive in building the ecosystem around and getting companies out and trying to keep them in the ecosystem. And so because of that, our focus has been a little bit shifted toward that. I'm at looking in Palo Alto and all my faculty members are friends with VCs, with former CEOs of companies, and they're consulting for Google and this and that. And so they're very much connected into the ecosystem and which allows for freer flow of technologies from the university into the ecosystem. And so we had to be much more uh, proactive in that area. And the other thing that's unique here is that because there's no business school, because there's no law school or med school, and because we're small, all the programs related to tech transfer, IP, licensing, entrepreneurship, corporate partnerships can be done under one roof and very orchestrated, as I said, deliberately planned. At many universities, you know, you have the engineering school and be doing something in entrepreneurship. The business school definitely has a program there. And they have an incubator over here. And the tech transfer office, you know, both Stanford and MIT are sort of limited to patents and licensing. And so it's a little bit, I think, disconnected. And we can do something here that's much more coordinated because it's under one roof. All the aspects of dealing with industry, even corporate partnerships, is under my office. So we have the venture fund, we have corporate partnerships, we have the incubators, we have this internal fund that goes into the labs for de-risking. And obviously we have uh, you know, IP, patenting, and licensing. 
As you said, you also got JPL, NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory. Does the tech transfer work the same for inventions coming out of JPL as it does a, the rest of Caltech? Yes and no. For the most part, yes, because a lot of the inventions that we see at Caltech are federally funded. So there's a process of disclosing to the government, doing compliance under the law. And so NASA has similar requirements. So I would say it's similar in the sense that we get the IP to review here when there's an invention to have disclosure obligation. We uh, select the ones we want to patent. We waive the ones we don't. Uh, then we take ownership. And just like any other federal agencies, we have to disclose to the agency and then put the name of the agency on the patent as a funder and a, an entity that gets a license. That makes sense. As you said, Caltech, you only launched the tech transfer office in 95. Why did you come to the game so late? As you said, Bardol in 1980. So that's 15 years after the act became law. The culture, I think, is a big part of it that evolved over that time. And, you know, we've very much been a fundamental science-focused institution for a long time, post-World War II, because there was so much money coming from federal agencies to do fundamental research. You know, Caltech really went big into that area. And, you know, to this day, we are 90 plus percent federally funded in terms of grants. It's competitive, you know, grants. So we're really good at getting money from the federal agencies. Prior to World War II, we were much more industry friendly and because funding from industry was easier at the time and it made sense. That's how the aerospace industry was developed here, you know, in the wind tunnel here and the jet engine, all these things. But again, post-World War II, we went more fundamental. And then in the 90s, people started looking at what was going on at other places and again, Stanford, MIT and other places. And a lot of commercialization, a lot of technologies coming out, and the government started to be much more interested in the impact of research, not just in terms of uh, research papers, but also in terms of technologies, economic development, things that help society in general, new products to market. So the culture started shifting. The students were definitely more interested in doing that, and new faculty members also. And even you know, old-timer faculty members with Nobel Prizes started doing it and were very interested in that. And so in the 90s, the culture really shifted. And by the time they started the office, it started to be something that people wanted to do and something that the purists didn't get in the way of. Our first director, Larry Gilbert, who came from Boston, MIT, and BU, had a model of, okay, I'm going to meet with every faculty member that does research in areas of interest. I'm going to tell them what we can do with it and then created those relationships early on. And people started disclosing. We went from 30 disclosures per year from the campus to 115 in a couple of years and patenting very aggressively. Turned out we had a pre-existing revenue from DNA sequencing. So it didn't have an office of tech transfer, but general counsel was doing some deals here and there. And that was coming in. They were money to invest in tech transfer and started patenting a lot. And to this day, we have a very aggressive patenting strategy. And then things took off very quickly. It was during the dot-com era. So there's a lot of investment that came. You know, people raise money easily. And so that kind of kick-started the office. And we've been really growing and adding more programs since then to shift from this patent licensing model to a business creation model. And I would say one more thing that we started doing is because we patented aggressively and we had a lot of interesting technologies that were patented, 
obviously not everything gets licensed. And we looked at enforcement of IP rights and we identified a few portfolios that were infringed. And so we went to these companies and asked them to take a license. And that was one of the successes in terms of you know financial success that brought significant revenues to Caltech. And then obviously that goes back into research and education. And so that was another piece of the model that we added because at the end of the day, you know, you have a licensing practice and large companies sometimes don't pay much attention to university IP. So occasionally I think it's part of good practices that occasionally on the, the right cases, the very good case where you believe you have a very strong case, it makes sense to enforce. It has to be occasional and not all the time, obviously. But so we had a whole portfolio in the CMOS image sensor area that came out of the space program with JPL mission to Saturn, and they developed these chips that could do imaging on the chip. And that's what ended up in the cell phones to enable the technology to be in cell phones, so low power, miniaturized. And so we had to enforce, and but the companies took the license very quickly, and we settled all that very quickly. And currently, we are in litigation with Apple and Broadcom on Wi-Fi technology. Can't say much about this, but so it's part of the whole program. Do you do anything to actively promote entrepreneurship on campus? We're starting to, you know, at the end of the day, we believe that it has to come from within the researchers to want to do this. It's hard. It takes a long time, a lot of failures, a lot of new things, additional things to learn from being a scientist and all that. And so it's not like we so much promoted, but we try to enable the people who demonstrate that desire to go out and start companies based on that research. And so those support programs, whether it's funding in the lab or investment in the company, you know, seed, pre-seed investment, put them in the nice facilities and providing that hands-on sort of first CEO type advice, mentorship before they find the business people to go along with them. That's part of what we've been doing actively. So that's our way of supporting entrepreneurship. When people don't come to Caltech, the first thing in mind is not becoming an entrepreneur. Of course, a lot of them do take that path, but it's not like a Stanford where you, you know, as an undergrad, you know, it's on your list because you want to start a company at some point. And so this is the environment to do it. This is not really the type of people we generally attract. There are people who are very dedicated to science and technology whether the undergrads or, the, of course, the grad students. And most of the companies we see at a Caltech are from the researchers and so the grad students, professors, postdocs, not so much from the undergrads. And they're very much deep tech based. So someone who's been doing research in one area for like the last seven years, 10 years, and now it's there seems to be a market out there, it's mature, it's de-risked, and then they're ready to go out and start a company. It's not the undergrad who, let's do a social networking kind of software where people can connect and let's call it Facebook. You know, not those kinds of things that we see most of the time. Yeah, it happens occasionally, but so we really focus on the research-based, deep tech-based technology transfer. That makes sense. I guess if you don't have a business call, that already cuts out an entire cohort of people that would found those companies that then don't come to Caltech in the first place as well. Yeah. And the other thing is we don't want to make, be careful not to, we don't want to change the fabric of Caltech. You know, Caltech is a place of research and engineering, you know, fundamental science deep, 
We have a lot of now translational programs on the research level. But that culture is the main culture. You know, what we do here is additive to it for the ones, for the 10, 15, 20% growing number of people who want to then take that technology to market because they want to see greater impact. Then we're here to support that without changing the core values of Caltech. And we're very careful about that. Do you run any specific programs to encourage women and underrepresented minorities to be more entrepreneurial? So we work with our uh, diversity office somewhat. We're a little bit small to have that and, and depends on the whole Caltech, the changes in, in terms of diversity and inclusion. So, but it turns out that we've had in the last two years, two women EIRs, entrepreneurs in residence, and then we've made a conscious effort to really help the women founders. So we have several startups that we invested in are women and minority founders. But, you know, we also have to balance that against, is, is it a good investment? Does it make sense for us to put money into this? But, you know, Caltech is, I think, becoming more and more diverse. And, and so we see a lot of great projects from women, from, you know, underrepresented minorities as well. As the student population and the faculty population changes, that creates more of that diversity in the startup area. Yeah, of course. You've mentioned investment funding a few times. We've got Rothenberg Innovation Initiative. You've got the Gates Growth Stake Fund. You've got the Caltech Seed Fund. You've got the Wilson Hill Fund. Can you tell me a little bit more about how these fit together? So, yeah, it's a little bit complicated. But so there's two groups. The Rothenberg Initiative and the Grab Stake are in the same kind of group, which the main one really is the Rothenberg Initiative one that's worth talking about more because it's bigger and it's similar to the Grab Stake. So, the money goes into the lab. It's 100 to 150,000 a year for two years. And there's a call for proposals every year. And it's for de risking technologies. It really goes into the lab and we get proposals from faculty. They explain what they want to do, what kind of experiments they want to run, a prototype they want to build, and what commercial potential. And then we assess that and we fund eight to 10 proposals a year for that. The grab stake is an ongoing program where people can apply. Again, similar idea, but we have this idea and we want to do work for a year on this and we need $70,000, $80,000 to do this. So that generates a lot of ideas for startups later on. And then you have the Caltech Seeds Fund and the Wilson Hill Fund that are investments in startups. So I think you can think of those as one because we co-invest, we have an agreement to co-invest in, in startups. And so they kind of match, at least match our investment. They were created to work directly with us, with this Caltech Seed Fund. And that's an investment in the company. And that could be half a million, a million dollars, maybe a million and a half to pre-seed or seed the company. Again, differences. The first one, the Rothenberg goes into the lab. It's a grant. There's really no strings attached other than our ability to recoup some of the funding if the company's formed. So there's some language like that in the agreements when you get the funding. And then the other ones, the seed fund and the Wilson Hill are an investment in the company. Is it generally easy to find money for your startups or easier now? I would say yes. Generally, the money has not been the main problem. But there's two categories of technologies, and that's what 
our seed fund that's now a year and a half old is trying to address. You have these technologies that either are from labs that are well-known that have done startups before, you know, VCs know them and they're just waiting for the next thing, or technologies that are hot at the moment, quantum technologies, you know, AI and all that stuff. So those tend to raise larger rounds right off the bat. It could be 15, 20, 50 million dollars in case of the pharma company. So those go off on their own and we don't need to help. We just do the license and we provide whatever help. And they experience entrepreneurs typically on the faculty. They go along with a postdoc and progress students. And so that's one category. And the other category are either they're not trendy at the moment, newer, younger faculty members who haven't, haven't done it before. They have no track record of studying companies, but they're very interesting and they could have great potential, but they need a little bit upfront work. Starting in the lab for the Rothenberg and de-risking, and then help from the EIRs to think about how we start a company, who do we hire, what milestones we need to reach to raise money. And then we have the seed funding to help them with the first half a million to million, million and a half, put their team together and they're really pitched together, their story together for a series A or a larger seed. And so those are the fund, the seed fund, and most of all, were created to help these technologies that have great potential, but don't fall under the category and fundable at this moment. And so we have to do a lot more work. And that's where, you know, go back to the business creation model where we really try to create a business from the technology and then to position those companies for funding via a VC. You've mentioned EIRs as well. How do you generally find management for your startups? Are they easy to come by? That's always the hardest thing, finding the right people. To, um, especially we are in an ecosystem that's not as dense, I would say. It's rich, but not dense. Silicon Valley, for example. So LA is a big area and there's a lot of great people in the entire ecosystem, but it's vast. And so that's always an issue. So the EIRs are former entrepreneurs that come in for two or three years to Caltech, to my office, full-time. And they focus on whatever startup at the moment is growing. And they're very well connected into the ecosystem. And so they're the ones that typically help find the first CEO, the first management team to team up with the scientific founders. And themselves, they often act as interim CEO um, of the company, even before it's formed, like pulling the pieces together and mentoring the scientific founders. But that's always the hardest thing. And I think anybody would tell you that. Even in Boston and San Francisco and Palo Alto, they'll tell you that finding the right people to, the right business people to team up with the scientists is the hardest thing. Yeah, it's definitely a story I've heard a few times. Do your companies generally stay in LA once they're formed or do they go up to the Bay Area or to Boston even? I think about over 50% stay and we want that number to go up and that's what we're working on and creating the ecosystem and building it. And for example, if it's a pharma company, they need wet labs and there's not a lot of possibilities in the area in Pasadena in terms of life science equipped facilities, then they tend to go to San Diego or the Bay Area, sometimes Boston. And so that's why we're working on building facilities in the area so that they can stay here. At least, you know, if you keep them in the area for the first two or three years, then routes are 
established and it's harder to move. And so we're focusing on those two, three years. But depending on where the management is and where the CEO is, the company will go there. And so I know our faculty members like to keep them close for the next, the, the first few years because they want to be able to, the first few years of company formation, there's a lot of transfer of technology, you know, non-IP type brain dumps of what they know from the lab, what works, what doesn't work. And once that transferred after two or three years, and then they're more focused on the engineering, sales, marketing, carrying products, and then it's not as important. That's why we want to keep them nearby early on. What is working well in the Caltech ecosystem then? Or what are the opportunities? I think what's working well at the moment is that I think we turn the corner in terms of being more reactive and a lot more proactive and not only helping our scientists and researchers start a company and partner with industry, but also in building an ecosystem around the campus. And that's kind of new and it's booming. I think people are very enthusiastic about doing that and you know helping transform the area into a tech hub where Caltech is the center of it. And you know, there's a lot of organizations that are moving to Pasadena as well, that scientific organizations, Carnegie Institute for Science is moving here. And we have uh, one of the now public company that came out of Caltech and 20 years ago, it moved back to Pasadena, Doheny High Institute. We have a casual medical school. Things are kind of coming together and there's a lot of enthusiasm about this whole thing. The other piece that, and you know, startups that we are launching are a lot more polished and mature than I think they were in the past. And the support to the entrepreneurs is higher quality and targeted and more available to the ones who want that support. The other piece that we've turned a big corner is in corporate partnerships, where we have a very comprehensive relationship with AWS, Amazon Web Services at the moment. And we have them on campus. So they have their own lab and doing a machine vision, AI, machine learning in a building where actually the they're on the second floor of a building, and on the first floor is the uh, incubator, sort of the dry incubator, as we're building a life science one. And then we invited to our campus to build their own building to do quantum computing. They have a big research group here doing quantum computing. Of course, we're collaborating with them, but it's their own group, and they're developing quantum computers here, there. Again, on the campus, it's the first time that we as far as I know that in the history that we led the company build their own building on the campus. So, you know, we're going in areas where it makes sense, where we're like-minded with these companies in terms of they want to do something far reaching and that needs a lot of fundamental research to get to actually be able to develop these quantum computers. You know, it seems like a perfect match where we do the fundamental work that needs to be done. You do the engineering part and hopefully that will result in quantum computers faster than whatever timeline we uh, envision. Is that generally the types of corporate partners that Caltech attracts then, companies who are interested in computing? Or is it much more diverse? It's more diverse. This one is the newest one, is a pre-COVID type era that we started. And they all initiated with faculty members who have connections, and they say, oh, let's do this together, and then we build something around it. The other ones are, you know, we have 
a long-standing relationship with Amgen. We have also a, a big one with Dow Chemical. We have uh, Boeing, Northrop Grumman. You know, it's pretty diverse. I guess that makes sense. JPL, yeah. How easy or not is it for Caltech at the moment to find tech transfer practitioners? Are you fully staffed or are you struggling like so many of your peers? Uh, we're fully staffed. We've been very stable, very low turnover. And so I guess I've been fortunate. I guess the way we work here, try to make the work flexible and interesting. We always do new things beyond the traditional tech transfer practice. Keeps people longer interested in the jobs, I think. And because they get to do patents and licensing and also with startups and then the venture fund and the incubator, all these things, they're, everybody can get involved in that. So they keep growing as professionals and the whole spectrum of commercialization, uh, as opposed to, you know, most tech transfer offices, all they do is patents and licensing and the fund is done by another group. And so. I think that helps retain people. The campus is beautiful. It's small and we have access to the faculty club. And it's a very pleasant experience. And so partly that's when people are being poached by other universities, they think twice because it's a pretty good situation here. We don't have any horror stories about <laughs> working at that university or that university. And so very stable. Not good. The, the area where it's harder to really lately post COVID is administrative support. You know, we'd struggle hiring people. We're fully staffed now, but in the last couple of years, getting resumes has been challenging from qualified people where, you know, in the past we would get 300 resumes. The next day we put an ad. Now it's like 15 resumes in three weeks. So that's general. Always surprises me because I always think a university is quite a nice place to work for. They tend to be really good employers. They tend to be good benefits and tends to be a nice working environment. So I'm always surprised when they struggle as well. Like, where do the people go? <laughs> they have to go somewhere. <laughs> I know. Where do they go? But they're also more demanding in terms of like, oh, is it fully flexible? Is it work from home? Is it all that stuff? You're originally from Corsica. You spent some time in France before you came to the US. You did your MSc at Caltech. You worked at JPL on GPS. You then moved to Miami. You came back to California. You worked at a law firm. Apparently, at some point, you contemplated a career at SETI, um, which I find kind of amazing. But now you've been at Caltech, obviously, for more than two decades. Why did you choose a career in tech transfer and why Caltech specifically? I had no idea tech transfer existed until I met people at Caltech. I knew that, you know, I didn't want to continue purely in technology, engineering area and research that I was doing before. It was very interesting. And, you know, I had an amazing job really where I was running GPX experiments in the Caribbean. And so that means that you have to take all kinds of GPS receivers and antennas to the field around fault lines and volcanoes and things like that and set them up and then get signal for two weeks or a week at a time and then take the data back to the lab, analyze, and then go back and remeasure and see how things move and using high precision GPS. And our area of study was the Caribbean and Mexico. So every two months you go in the field, Jeeps, off-roading. Yeah, I was in my twenties. It was adventure, you know, and when you set up the receivers, you just, you wait. So there's, you can enjoy the local 
beaches, culture. And at some point, after six, seven years of doing that, I was like, okay, what's, that's great. I'm enjoying this very much. But I want to do something in business and maybe law, maybe things were booming in the West Coast, in technology. And so I decided to, to go into patent law. At the time, it was really easy to get, as an engineer, it was pretty easy to get a job in the law firm doing patent work because they couldn't find enough people. And so I went to that for a couple of years and I enjoyed that very much and I learned a lot, but it was a little bit too narrow for me. And it was just, you do the patent work and then someone else takes it and who knows what happens with it, if it goes anywhere. And then a former classmate of mine told me, oh, they have a job at Caltech for someone with double E background and some patent experience. They had someone ironically named Fred who worked at JPL and had a master's from Caltech. We just turned it down. So why don't you come and talk to them? And I'm like, what is tech transfer? Never heard of it. And I came and I talked to them and Larry Gilbert, our founding father, I would say, whose DNA is in the back there. <laughs> Baseball, <laughs> cap, Red Sox fan. Talked to me for an hour about tech transfer. Didn't ask any questions. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, this is the easiest interview I had, but it was so interesting because it was basically everything that I kind of wanted to do, which is I want something that's connected to technology on the business side with IP. And it's like, I'm going to learn a lot to come here and learn about licensing. Oh, you know, patents. I, you know, know something about technology. And then I'm here 21 years later. And I have enjoyed very much the, you know, first of all, in the early years, after about five, six years, then there were retirements and the person was supposed to take over jumped to the investment field and I very quickly was promoted and then became the director only five, six years after I even started in the field. And then I was able to really push projects that I thought were important with the support and given a lot of freedom, you know, the enforcement project with the JPL technology that now is in cell phones to early stage funding, EIERs, the venture fund, the incubators, you know, when I try to look back and say, how come I've been in one place for 21 years? It's like it's evolved so many times and I don't feel I'm doing the same job I was doing when I first started, that's for sure. So a lot of exciting things that have happened every couple of years. And really, I've been able to shape the direction and you know, build the things that I thought were important to build around. Are there any interesting wider changes in tech transfer that you've seen over these past couple of decades? Everybody's become a lot more sophisticated about it, universities and companies. I think it's probably harder now to get a deal on a royalty deal that's going to bring lots of money like in the past, whether it's the types that would, you could do a deal and company were okay with, oh, here's the three, four, 5% royalty. In startups, you need equity, you know, that now there's a market that's been kind of fixed for this is how much equity university should get from a deal and you know even though maybe it's not that fair because initially the technology is the value is entirely coming from university and now oh, we get five percent but that's kind of established and it's doesn't look like it's going to be moving that much you know this idea again i mentioned from more reactive patenting and licensing to whoever comes and asks for it and all these new programs that universities are doing to put in place to promote tech transfer, to enable the translational technology and whether it's funding or facilities, all that. 
that's where it's going, I think. I think we are generally going toward a business creation model rather than just patent licensing. There's a lot more scrutiny on conflict of interests and things like that. So that's a little bit, how do I say, paralyzing for some because, you know, in the past people didn't pay that much attention to it, better or for worse, but, you know, the agencies were not as demanding on conflict disclosures and things like that. So the bureaucracy has gone up. That's the downside. Vital to regulations, impose more things. And, you know, the compliance of the government is a bit um, too diverse in the sense that every agency does their own thing and it's not really one process for everyone. And so that creates um, issues. Yeah, but generally the field has grown a lot. There's a lot more people in universities are doing more and are certainly a lot more sophisticated about it. So it's, I think it's in a good place and going in a good direction. Is there anything that you would change about it, how it's done today? The changes that I would make have to do with removing the bureaucratic obstacles to getting technologies out. And so this whole compliance with the government is very complicated. Universities have entire staff to do just that. And I think that could be rethought and streamlined in a way that doesn't require all that extra work, really. And it's pretty complicated work, you know, provisional versus non-provisional and the date when you disclose, when you elect rights, right? You know, it's like, what could it be just that you put stuff on the patent and then it's done? And <laughs> when you file it, no, there's all kinds of things going on. So that piece, I think, uh, could be re-engineered to make it more streamlined so we can focus on the funding that we use for all these things and the government is because they have their counterparts on the other side of people who do all that stuff, right? You know, could use that money to help the companies at the early stage to do de-risking of technologies to all that stuff. It's much, much better use of the money. Maybe it's too idealistic to think that way, but I think there's progress to be made in that area. Yeah, I have a feeling a lot of your peers would probably share that view as well. Is there any advice you would give to someone starting out in this career today? I think it's become a tough field to get into because there's not that many jobs. And people come from all walks of life, you know, from technology, from law, from business. So, you know, I always advise people to, if they really want to get into it, to do their rotations, meaning you typically require technical background, whatever area, then do something in the patent area because that's a core thing for tech transfer, then licensing, then startup, you know, venture capital. You kind of have to learn a little bit about everything. However, you can do that interning. And if you're a new graduate and you want to get in tech transfer and internships are the best way to learn about it, to make sure it's something for you and also to get to know people in the field. Once you know people, and it's very easy for us to look at resumes and not pay attention. And if we don't see that perfect profile we're looking for, when we know the person and they ask and then it's, yeah, and we like them, then we got to make an effort to see if we can do something for them and with them. So internships are the best way probably to get into this field. But I feel it's really, really much more difficult than it used to be because there's more people interested in it and not as many jobs. Yeah. Can you give me some examples of some Caltech spinouts? For whatever reason you want to highlight them, whether they've made a lot of money, whether you think the technology is interesting or they're recent and they're up and coming. We've talked a lot about business creation and not actually named any businesses yet. 
I'm going by prolific inventors like Bob Grubbs, who is a chemistry Nobel Prize, started a few companies, one that got bought recently by Exxon called Materia, based on his uh, Nobel Prize winning technology. He also started a company in the ophthalmology area for lenses that are for cataract. You replace your lens and you can adjust it after the fact to get perfect vision. Currently, uh, the technology does, you know, when the post-surgery, when everything settles, people still need to wear glasses after surgery. That would allow to, and it's actually FDA approved and they're probably company at the moment. Francis Arnold, another Nobel chemistry, uh, started several companies, including one in Santa Monica called ProVV in the AgBio area, pheromones and for agriculture and things like that. Moy Garib, another very prolific inventors, had uh, another ophthalmology company in the glaucoma area that went public called Glaucos. He also had a dental imaging, 3D imaging company to get the scans of the mouth. You see that in dentist offices now. That was purchased by a German company called Serona. He now has a, a drone company for heavy lift drone company for package delivery and other goods, search and rescue, all that stuff. Then he has a hard valve company as well, a polymer hard valve that is undergoing uh, FDA approvals at the moment. Those are very different. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I know it's something to realize people know is it's not the entire faculty that is interested in this. It's a percentage of them. I think a growing percentage, but you know, 15, 20% are the ones that are repeat offenders, I would say. Another one is called Capsida, Viviana Gradenauer. It's a uh, gene delivery company for central nervous system disorders. We are invested now more early stage, but the fund has invested in a quantum company and a stroke detection company, in a battery company, in a cancer drug company, and high-throughput diagnostic company. So really all over the map. <laughs> yeah, amazing. We are very nearly out of time. Is there anything else we haven't covered that you want to share? It's just that I think LA is rising as a major tech hub in the world, and certainly we're playing our part here, but I think in 10 years, LA and Pasadena will be recognized as one of the most active in life sciences, and but also other areas, whether it's quantum or AI. And we hope to create a quantum momentum here in the area as well. So it will be nice to see that in a few years. We'll see the predictions uh, turn out. <laughs> Amazing. Well, LA has got a lot going for it besides the universities as well. So it's a great city full of great people. Fred, thank you so much for taking your time to talk to me today. It's been a great pleasure. You're welcome. Anytime. Talking Tech Transfer is hosted by me, Thierry Helis. If this is your first time listening, make sure to hit that subscribe button and peruse our archive of more than 50 interviews. This podcast is a production by Global University Venturing, a Morsonia Limited publication. You can find our website at globalventuring.com forward slash university, on Twitter at GU Venturing, and on LinkedIn as Global University Venturing. Our sound engineer is Mark Chatterley from In Ear Production. 
You can find out more about them at inearproduction.com. If you have any comments or are interested in being a guest on a future episode, feel free to email me at thales at globalventuring.com. That's T-H-E-L-E-S at globalventuring.com. We'd also really love it if you left us a review on Apple Podcasts, and if you haven't yet, do recommend this podcast to your friends and colleagues, or maybe even share it on LinkedIn or Twitter. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you.